Good morning. Well, I was going to uh, follow up with everything that he forgot about that, but then he like remembered everything. So there's a whole lot more to say about the coffee and couples, except this. Uh, my husband and I have been married almost 40 years and been in ministry for 30. And uh, we developed a course for, for marriage a zillion years ago, like before the internet years ago. And we are going to update what we're doing. So even if you've been through a class with us before and you're thinking about whether or not you want to sign up again, we are going to be developing new material for that. And also, if you have a topic that you think you would like for us to cover, whether you've been married one year or 15, send it our way. And we want to make sure that we hit the areas that uh, people need to hear about in this post-COVID world when, you know, honestly, marriages have taken a bit of a hit. So, um, enough about that. My name is Janice. I'm so glad to be with you, continuing in this series as we march forward toward Easter. We are still in the book of John. And, uh, and as we've talked about from day one, the reason John writes this whole book, he lays it out more clearly than anyone, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's his whole goal, right? That's what we're working toward this whole time. Now, I love the way John sets up his book because if he's writing a biography on Jesus, if he's writing about Jesus' ministry, he leaves out a lot. Like the first 30 years of his life are virtually non-existent, right? Instead, he spends 11 chapters on three years of Jesus' ministry and then we're going to be in chapter 12 today, so you can head there if you're going. Starting now, for the next 10 chapters, will only be on the last week of Jesus' life. Clearly, he's building up to Easter, right? The last week of his life, he takes 10 chapters to do that, or the equivalent of how we broke it out into chapters, while the first 11 were three years of ministry, and he just, you know, throws a bone at, you know, his beginnings. We don't even have a birth story in uh, this particular book. So, we are going to be uh, starting here, and he's working toward Easter, and I love this chapter because, in my mind, this is where things get cooking, Right? This is where things begin to happen that are going to set in motion the mousetrap of events that will lead to the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection. So let's look at this together, John 12. I'm going to be using the first 12 verses. You can follow along behind or on whatever devices or old-fashioned book that you might have. Right? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. John's always giving you a little extra description about people, right? This is the guy that Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That's a little John commentary there in case you want a description of, of Judas. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. All right, so getting ready to take out two hits, one on Lazarus and one on Jesus. Right? So, by the way, be careful if you want to get risen from the dead. It's not always good for you. Right? The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, I loved the fact that this particular episode that Mary pours out perfume on Jesus catches John's attention so much that he mentions it twice. Remember last week when Pastor Jeff was preaching on Lazarus being raised from the dead? That's how John introduces Mary. He's like, remember, this is Mary, the one who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and, and wiped it, all right? So, and every one of the gospel writers includes this event. Every one of them, it shows up in all four Gospels, but John is the only one who gives the woman a name and says, this is Mary, and this is the only one who gives the naysayer a name. And the other ones, it's like, oh, some disciples complained. No, in this one, John's like, nope, it was Judas. He's the one. He's the one who got cranky about the whole thing, and Mary is the giver of the gift. But I'm telling you, this is the event that sets off everything leading to the death of Jesus, and Mary is inadvertently preparing Jesus body for burial, although I doubt that that's what she was planning. Let's look at how, just briefly, how each player in this story is giving a visceral reaction to who Jesus is, okay? Everybody in this story, there are no lukewarm people here. Everybody's got a, got a position, right? First of all, Simon the leper, not named in this particular account, but in the other accounts, we know that this house where they're at is the house of Simon the leper. He throws a party in honor of Jesus. That's his reaction. Now, I'm also assuming that if Simon is a leper and he's inviting a bunch of people over, he's like better, right? I mean, you got to assume that, don't you? I mean, I hope I'm not, you know, I hope that's not heresy. I'm saying maybe he was healed by Jesus right? But he's still known as the leper. He's known for what he had been and what Jesus has done for him, unless he's like, you know, developing a leper colony. I doubt it. So Simon the leper throws a dinner. Lazarus attends and gets to recline with Jesus. That's how they are. You know, some, I looked at all these pictures of Mary pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, and some people have Jesus sitting in a straight chair like he was in Britain or something. You know what I mean? That isn't how they, that happened, right? He's, he's reclining on couches. That's how they were uh, eating dinner, which sounds terrible to me, but, you know, you do you. So Lazarus attends. Mary is still serving. She's still doing her bit, which is serving in honor of Jesus. And you know what? Serving is a great thing. It's all about the attitude of the heart, which she struggled with in, in the Luke passage. Mary pours out a treasured perfume in honor of Jesus. People are following to see Jesus and to check out this, you know, fellow who rose from the dead, and they will follow him on into Jerusalem cheering and waving stuff, okay? They're having a parade. The Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus, and Judas objects. In this passage, Judas objects. As a matter of fact, I think the argument can be made that this is where he deconstructs his faith. That's a common phrase these days. He's deconstructing his faith. He's like, I don't like this anymore. And he basically deconverts, if you want to say that, at least for a moment, over this perfume incident. And I'll flesh that out more in a bit. 
In general, things are ramping up and Jesus is gaining more and more followers or at least seekers. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between that, right? There are followers. Those are the people who are devoted to Jesus. They have signed on for him. They are wearing the jersey. They're on the team. Their contract, they they are in. They are all in. They will be prosecuted as followers if it came down to that. They They are in and on the team. And then there are seekers, the people who are following, who are like, you know, they're just checking out the clubhouse. You know, they're in the building, but they haven't signed on. They aren't wearing the jersey yet. They're attending. They're showing up for some stuff, but they're not really sure. You know, some of us may be seekers here today, right? And remember, we got a, we got a tank if you decide to change your status by the end of the, the, the service, right? If you decide to become a follower today instead of a seeker. But a seeker is a great place to be. A seeker is somebody who's intrigued by this. What, what is really going on? And, and, you know, by the way, what is this fellow who's been walking around for four days? I, I mean, after four days in a tomb. You know, the Lazarus incident has to be trending on Twitter. Those, you know, I mean, that's going around town. People know what's happening. And there are folks who are just seeking The Pharisees are worried that the seekers are going to become followers. They're concerned that seekers are going to become followers. And I'm I'm thinking, who cares? As I was studying this, I'm like, why are the Pharisees so worked up about this? Who cares if somebody follows this guy? It's not like Jesus was campaigning and running for chief Pharisee or chief priest. It doesn't look like he's attempting to unseat them. So what exactly is he concerned about? And here's what I see. What's happening is the Pharisees have been enforcing laws that came from Moses in Exodus. And Moses got his law from God up on the mountain. So so God gives Moses the laws. The Pharisees are taking the laws. They're interpreting them. And they're making even more specific rules about it. Jesus comes along and says, "Um, I'm not even... Talking about Moses, I happen to have more access to the Father than you do. I, I'm getting it direct. As a matter of fact, I am the Son of God. Now, now that's troubling to them. Jesus didn't just come along and, and you know, set up a separate religion. He's hijacking, in their minds, what they had. And, and he's gaining influence in what is really a zero-sum game. So as Jesus gains influence, the Pharisees are losing it. They're losing influence and Jesus is undermining their authority and they're and they're not having it and he does it in this way you know Jesus may go riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on the on a colt but I would suggest to you that Jesus is the consummate cowboy he really needed a horse you know what I mean he is a cowboy and the term that we use cowboys today meaning he is a maverick he does what he thinks is right and he's doing his own thing and and the Pharisees are like this is not this is not okay Jesus has been too cavalier with the religious rules and here's some of the things he's been cavalier about. He's like, well, you know, I'm, I, he doesn't really care about the ceremonial hand washing. He's been a little slack on that. He's letting his disciples get away without washing hands. He's letting his disciples pull grains out of the field on a Sunday from the wheat that's there and, and eat it. And they're like, that's work. You can't do that. He's been healing people on the Sabbath. He's not taking the rules seriously. And they're, and they're fussed about that, right? He's been too cavalier. Now, listen. As a rule, I like rules. 
right? As a rule, I like rules because they kind of set, set things up. And I, you, know, you know what's expected of you and you know how to stay in the line or out of the line or whatever. But when we begin to depend on rules or our spiritual habits as an essence of our faith, we're missing it. The rules are never going to get you there. And the Pharisees had begun to do that. Isaiah 29, 13, even in the Old Testament, the prophet said it. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they have been taught. And Jesus is kind of making light of that. And so this episode in particular sets Jesus' message apart from the Pharisees who were known for their attention to good works. And this is what I believe John is including when he's including this passage, besides the fact that this is now narrative and explaining what's happening, right? This is what I think John shows us in this passage. John will show us what belief in Jesus looks like and what it doesn't look like. And there's a high contrast in this passage, right? So let's tear this out. Number one, Mary pours out her savings. Mary pours out her savings. Now, we know from Jesus' words that this was a saving, right? This is not her usual daily scent. That she, this is not cologne that she's putting on herself to cover body odor or to become attractive to anyone or anything else. That, this is not an erotic moment. She's not attempting to seduce Jesus in this passage. And frankly, John doesn't even make a big deal about her pulling her hair down, which a lot of commentators want to build that up as some sort of strange thing. It's, you know what? She was just doing this in this moment. She is honoring him. And can I tell you how much she is honoring him with? A full pint or pound. Now, it probably wasn't in a coffee cup with a, you know, a moniker, with an M, a monogram on there. It might have been for Mary. I don't know. I don't know. But, but this amount of perfume, single use, worth a year's wages. Now, just for comparison, here's my perfume. I don't even know if you can see that. It's like a third of an ounce. I'll use this in a whole year. And if I sprayed it right now, these people in the front would probably get irritated because they'd smell it, right? Can you imagine <laughs> if you're pouring out an entire pint, an entire pint of scent on Jesus' feet? This is what we're talking about. This is what she is doing in this moment in front of everyone. Now, here's the interesting part. Scents in this day were used in a couple of ways. Perfumes were used in particular for burial. There were burial spices. So when Jesus says, she did this for my burial, that's what he meant. But I doubt she thought that because the other place that you often see scents used were first of all in the temple and in coronations or anointing someone for a specific position. Okay? And you're using that scent in a way that sets them out. Kings were anointed with an oil in a way to denote their position. And then get this, after that's been dumped on you, when you walk through a crowd, people know who you are. They know that that scent means that somebody royal is there. Let me back that up with scripture. I didn't print this for you, but listen. For I'm a psalm for King David. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. 
All of your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassa. Psalm 45, 7 through 8, if you want that address. Here's another one out of Song of Solomon. Listen to this. Song of Solomon 3, 6 through 7. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. When you smell a big, strong smell, it might be a king rolling into town, right? So here's the other added piece of this. In just a moment, Jesus is going to leave this place and end up going into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because bathing is not necessarily a daily ritual in this time, chances are he is still smelling like the worship that has been poured out on him as he, goes into, as he goes into Jerusalem. So when people are waving palm branches, they're actually fanning that smell to some degree and, and allowing for the fact that, yes, this is a king, right? So as Mary anoints Jesus, she's not necessarily referring to burial, but she's confirming her belief in him as the anointed one her belief that he is the Messiah, her belief that he is the king. Her gift and action says this, this is who you are to me. This is who you are to me. Nobody else anointed you in this house, but you are the king to me. When we give our tithe and our offering, and let's not forget that this is a monetary gift, right? A year's wages worth of stuff, and just Conservatively in Madison County, that's 40 grand. Can you imagine? I, I paid 30 for my perfume, 30 bucks, right? 40 grand that you are pouring out, meaning this is who you are to me. When we give our tithes and our offering to Jesus, can we say that? Does this represent, receive from me today, God, this is who you are to me? I am stating with this gift the importance of you in my life. What do we bring to God to indicate who he is to us? See, and I, I've taught on this before. I really believe that, Jesus, that Mary is worshiping Jesus with something that she is really, this is really not just a thing that she's holding on to. If you have a, a year's worth of wages of anything in your house, in your safe space, in your bank, why, do you, why are you holding on to a year worth of anything? Unless it's there to protect you on a rainy day, in a time of crisis, in a time of emergency, for retirement, something like that. The very thing that represents security to her. And you know what? And maybe she had 40 more of these. I don't know how wealthy she was. But, but whatever, she gives a whole year, and it's worthy of notice because John makes a point about it right, of how much it is, Mary is liquidating, pun intended, she is liquidating literally her security. But what she's doing is she's transferring her monetary security to Jesus. <laughs> and she's saying, you know, it's on you now, God. I used to depend on that. Now I'm depending on you. Now I give my future to you. Whatever is going to be for me, it's going to be up to you. I am here and I'm trusting you with the future. That is what true belief in Jesus is. That's what it means to truly trust in him in such a way. She is all in. People will talk about this forever. Every gospel writer includes it. No one in the gospel suggested it was inappropriate. They're simply amazed at her faith 
because this is what it means to trust God by leaning on him in this way. Number two, I better roll. Number two, Judas objects to the gift. This is what it means to not follow Jesus. He objects to the gift. As Mary breaks out this pint or pound of perfume to pour over her feet, Judas just can't handle it, you know? And I have to wonder, was it the size of the gift? Would he have minded if it had been a week's wages? Or was it the size of the gift that really troubled him? I don't know what he's fussed about. Was he concerned that as the treasurer, he was going to have to write her a gift of receipt? You know, like you get at Goodwill. You know, was he worried about that? I don't know what his problem was with the whole thing. Um, But he does sit there and calculate what's happening, like any good bookkeeper does. Years ago, my husband and I owned a coffee shop, and uh, my husband ran the staff and, and the front of it and led the whole thing, and I did the books upstairs, and wow, I learned a lot about running a small business in a small town, but it, but it affected me in ways that I didn't expect. I would go into another establishment, and I would be thinking, wow, I wonder what the overhead is in this place. You know what I mean? We went ice skating one time up in Lexington, and there were like four or five people around on the ice, and I'm like, these people are not paying the freight for those lights. What's going on here? You know, I don't know who's, I don't know. You know, you begin to calculate like that. I don't know if that's what Judas is doing because on the surface, his point is very valid. This is not the Dave Ramsey way. Do you know what I mean? This is not how you save money. This is not the way you should spend money. This, you know, but folks, this is the moment that sets everything in motion. Of course it was meant to happen. But according to Mark 14, the very next thing that happens in the trajectory of this week, right after this event, Judas gets up and walks out. And this is where he goes. According to Mark 14, Jesus is talking, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What does it take to set us off? What causes us to make rash decisions? What does it take for us to throw in the towel on something? You know, I, you know, and again, I don't even understand what Judas's real objection is. I, you know, he wasn't known for compassion, according to John. I don't know that it was just an opportunity to skim because he didn't even know it was coming. Is it just the idea of waste, you know, or, or that he wasn't consulted or, you know, that he, you know, was it more than he had personally invested in the mission and he wanted a, a bigger piece? I don't really know. I think it's easy for us to criticize Judas and to say, you know, he should have just minded his own business. However, in this society that we live in now, in this age of expose and cancel culture and freedom of speech and open critique, I think most of us can identify with Judas a little bit. Some of us have shopped for a home church before. Some of you may be shopping for one in here right now. Some of us have critiqued very carefully and evaluated how things operate and Hopefully you're doing that, and you know you'll have an opportunity. Starting point is next service, and Pastor Joe's going to teach it. You're going to get you're going to get it all next next service. Just show up, and and he'll tell you everything you want to know. Some of us have exited a church community in disillusionment over something, but can I say this? Don't use your criticism of how a church does or doesn't serve the poor in what you happen to know about it 
as your excuse to not get involved in church. The enemy will use your criticism to keep you from really digging in and getting involved. Judas uses his disillusionment with how people are spending money to exit. He forfeits his membership in the, with the disciples. Now, not yet. He's going to show up for a couple more weeks and because they still think he's part of them. They don't know that he's waiting for an opportunity, that he's already cut a deal with the Pharisees. He'll hang around to the Last Supper, but he's already forfeited his membership. He will end up forfeiting his position as treasurer over his disgruntlement with how the money is spent, with his frustration over waste. You know? Now, don't mistake this. He's not challenging Mary. He's challenging Jesus. He's looking at Jesus, and he's saying, that's a mismanagement of funds right there. If you were really paying attention, you wouldn't have let her do that. You would have redirected her gift in a better way. You would have done that. You would have recognized the waste. But this is what Jesus teaches in that moment. And don't miss this. Honoring God will always trump social justice. Honoring God will always come before social justice. You can be devoted to social justice and never honor God with that. But if you are honoring God, social justice will be a part of who you are. It will be an expression of who we are. And Jesus is like, I didn't come. I did not give you the mission to eliminate poverty. As a matter of fact, that's never going to happen. You will always have poor to take care of. Do that. Right? But don't pretend that taking care of the poor can take the place of honoring me. Just because I love and support the, the food pantry does not take the place of being in church community and having a relationship with God. And we noticed ever since we planted this church, I don't know how many years ago it was, over a decade ago, there were people who were very attracted to the fact that we worked in community. We do work in the community. We do care about the poor. But we do it in the name of Jesus. We do it in the name of Jesus to honor him. And I love what Jesus says to him. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. This just jumped off the page at me this time when I was studying it. That means that this is not only a public rebuke, it was a public criticism. He didn't whisper in Jesus' ear, hey, you know that could have been used better. He says, leave her alone. The only reason he says leave her alone is because she heard it. She heard it. And he's saying, Leave her alone. It's none of your business. Jesus protects women in the Gospels like no one else. Like no one else. But here's the deal. When I mouth off in public, sometimes God has to correct me in public. And that has to be okay. And I began to think as I was looking at this, who is God asking me to leave alone? Who have I been fussing about in my heart, publicly, in private? And, and God is saying, leave them alone. None your business. Not your problem. I'm going to take care of it. I need to hear that a lot, right? But again, it's so popular in this day and age of a podcast and exposés and, and, you know, documentaries with salacious details and, and about religious leaders who have fallen into sin. And I'm telling you, we're not here to protect that. We're not here to hide that. But by George, I will not make money off of watching someone fall from grace. When someone falls in sin, we should be grieving, not clapping. We should be grieving. I don't even see it as a warning for us not to, to follow those kind of leaders. I think, in fact, it really just chases other people away and gives all of us a black eye so that people are like, see, you can't go to church. Those people can't be trusted. 
I want to be careful about gaining popularity off of the sins of other people. But most of the time, God is saying to me, leave them alone. Just leave them alone. Number three, Mary's worship fills the room. It fills the room. If you pull this back to its original language, which is Greek in this case, the word for fill means complete. It, it fills the room to, to fulfillment, to completion, right? That it, it's, it's, there's no more room for anything else. Not unlike the glory of the Lord that filled the temple in the Old Testament so much when God showed up in a big way, so much that the priests couldn't work. 1 Kings 8, 11, And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. Mary's worship was complete to the full. Mary's worship got on everybody. You couldn't escape it. It got on everyone. Maybe you came in and you think that, you know, you smelled really great today. Well, now you're taking this home with you. Whether, you know what I mean? Maybe Judas is mad because this was overpowering his, you know, Axe body spray. I don't really know. But he's like, I don't really, I was going to do, I really wanted to do a better object lesson. I was going to have some people come up through the aisles and spray perfume all, over all of you. And everybody I told, told that to goes, no, that'll make people mad. And I said, that's the point. People are getting mad at somebody else's worship. Too bad. Her worship got on them. I'm like, you'll never forget it. You maybe never come back either, but you'd never forget it. So now you just pretend, right? Think about it. Mary's worship annoyed Judas, right? And sometimes the things that annoy us are still a form of worship that God is receiving from someone you know, I grew up in a very stoic, non-demonstrative church tradition where nobody raised their hands unless they were voting on something, right? You didn't clap, you didn't raise your hands, you didn't do any of that, and that's one of the things the, the vineyard showed me, and it took me a bit, you know? It took me a hot minute to go, you know, you know what I mean? It was just like, I don't know about all of that, because so many times I was suspect of people who clapped, people who raised their hands, people who acted crazy, and I thought, how many times have I condemned such action in my heart while God was gratefully receiving their worship, and all I was offering was my own self-righteous judgment of what they were doing. Now, don't get me wrong, there's still order to worship that Paul talks about, but there's a lot more freedom than I ever had room for. And there is nothing like worship that fills a room to the brim. When the room is thick with his presence, when the music makes my eyes water, when I feel emotional and I wasn't planning on it, when the Holy Spirit comes on us, it can make us emotional even if we don't believe. Years ago, um, it was a Mother's Day, actually. I remember that because my husband was out of town uh, visiting his mom, and, uh, and I was still here, and we had uh, somebody came up to me after service and said, can you come back here? They want to talk to a pastor. Uh, somebody does, and I'm like, okay. So I went back, and there was a, a man and wife about my age and, uh, and their college-age daughter sitting between them in the back row, and, uh, and I went up to them, and they were all crying. And the man said, uh, I said, what, what can I do for you? And he said, we want to know what just happened here. I said, well, we just had church. I, what, do you, what do you mean? He said, you don't understand. He said, uh, first of all, the only reason we're here is our adult daughter 
uh, is graduating from college and she asked if we would, as a special favor to her, come to church with her together. But she said, he said, but just so you know, her mother and I, she was one person over, are in a bitter divorce. The only reason we're here is for our daughter. And, and by the way, we're Catholic and we don't know what in the world just happened here, but we can't stop crying. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. That's the spirit moving in you. You don't even have to believe to be hit with it. It doesn't make you a Christian, but you could certainly feel his presence and you can decide if you want to surrender to it. It's powerful when the worship fills the room. If you find your eyes watering, you find yourself getting a little emotional when music is happening here or even during a message, you don't have to worry about that. That's something that God is doing in us because his spirit interacts with our physical beings in such a powerful way. We're going to go into a time of ministry here in a moment, and these people are a prayer team, and, uh, and they're available anytime during the last song for you to come up to if you would like prayer for something. So come to your feet for a moment as I, as I just uh, mentioned these things. I don't know how God has been stirring your heart. I don't know what perfume you've been smelling this morning. But here's a couple options. Are you beginning to question how your giving actually demonstrates who God is to you? Are you challenged this morning by God to leave somebody alone? Just let them, just leave them alone. Get out of their business. God will take care of it. Are you anxious to experience and offer more worship to God than you've done before? Or maybe you're ready to demonstrate your faith in baptism this morning. Maybe you're ready to surrender to God for the first time in your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for John's words and, and for these memories that have been written down and preserved for us so that we can learn more about who you are and how people responded to you in that day. Thank you that we have this in print. We don't even have to depend upon an oral tradition. Thank you for that. Thank you for the steadiness of the word and the, the infallibility of your word, God, regardless of how we do it. Thank you. God, I pray that you would quicken the feet of the people in this room whose hearts are beating too fast right now, and they don't want to come forward in front of people. They don't want to be obvious about what you're doing in their life, but you are touching them, and they know that they need to just step forward and let someone pray over them this morning. Free their feet. In Jesus' name.